You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 81. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so much for giving me your time and your attention today. In this episode, I wanted to dive into the poetic Edda, and specifically the sayings of Har, or the Havamal, as it's commonly referred to. The Poetic Edda is a bookend to the Prose Edda, which are collections of wisdom, Norse wisdom in particular, collected through the ages, and then later assembled, and then translated by Lee M. Hollander. This is the edition most often referenced and referred to by scholars. I will try to remember to include a link in the show notes if you would like to purchase a copy for yourself. But as I said, these are the sayings of Har, specifically referred to as the Havamal. And I'll just read the introduction for you so that if you're not familiar with them, you can catch up to speed. This, the longest of the Eddic poems, is largely didactic in nature. Here, more abundantly than in any other monument, do we find the homely wisdom, that sternly realistic view of life, those not ignoble ethical conceptions, which are given such classical illustration in the Icelandic sagas. At least five separate sections can be made out of the poem. The first, consisting of 79 stanzas, is a series of counsels on the more common situations of life. They stress especially the laws of hospitality, the rules of decent conduct, the value of circumspection in one's dealings with men, the need for moderation in eating and drinking, the vanity of mere wealth compared with true merit, all in the spirit of Germanic heathendom, with many a pearl of shrewd wisdom, terse humor, noble sentiment. We may single out for admiration the deeply moving stanzas on having a home of one's own, however humble, and those magnificently asservating the lastingness in a world subject to the law of change of a fair name. Asseverating. That's a word I have never seen before in my life. A-S-S-E-V-E-R-A-T-I-N-G. Asseverating. Hmm, there we go. Asseverating. You and I both learned something new today. The ensuing stanzas, stanzas 80 through 90, are irregular in structure and more largely proverbial in substance. They form the transition to the second portion of the poem, the so-called Examples of Odin, which deal in a frankly cynical spirit with man's relation to woman, in particular with woman's inconstancy and treachery, but also with her gullibility, as instanced by the two love adventures of Odin told in the first person. Without any connection, there follows the so-called Lay of Lodfafnir, for the most part, in irregular verse. It contains miscellaneous counsels on such subjects as love and friendship, supposedly given to the Thule, Lodfafnir, by Odin himself. As a whole, this portion is notably inferior to the first. (laughs) A fourth part, the so-called Ruin Poem, that stands as 138 through 146, composed in somewhat incoherent stanzic forms, deals obscurely with runic wisdom as acquired and taught by Odin. And last, there are 18 magic charms, 
efficient to make dull the blades of swords, to cure disease, to calm the sea, and to perform other useful services. If used with the proper ruins, and we shall meet with similar collections in the Sigrid Fudmal and the Grogaldir. Manifestly, the poem is not a homogeneous whole, but a congress of aphorisms, proverbs, magic lore, and the like, which we owe to some early collector. Attempts toward a better ordering of the material have not carried conviction. To establish the age and providence of such a collection is far from the nature of the case not feasible. However, Norwegian origin seems likely for the most of it. We know that at least some stanzas existed in the 10th century. For certain lines are quoted or composed, for all we know, by the noted skald Avent, Skaldspieler, who died toward the end of that century. The Codex Regius, our sole source for the collection, also gives us the title. Stanza 1 is quoted in the Prose Edda, stanza 84, lines 4 through 6, in the Frost Braura Saga, chapter 21. There you have it. Me trying to pronounce ancient Nordic, <laughs> ancient Norse, and Lee M. Hollander's um, pithy comments <laughs> about the nature of the uh, sections in this. So that being said, I am not going to read it straight through because that would take us far too long. And therefore, what I'm going to do is jump through the Poetic Edda, through the Havamal, and just kind of touch on some of the high points in all four well, all four, at least three of the sections. So let's dive into it. This is the sayings of Har, otherwise known as the Havamal, which are found in the Poetic Edda, translated by Lee M. Hollander. Stanza 16. The unwise man thinks that he, I, will live, if from fighting he flees. But the ails and aches of old age dog him, though spears have spared him. So a man is not wise, according to the Havamal, if he thinks that if he runs away from a fight, he'll live. Perhaps in the moment, perhaps for that day, perhaps for quite a long time, he will live running from fights. Because he thinks to himself, well, I've been spared spears. I've been spared the sword. I have not had to suffer in battle and struggle, and therefore I have been spared. I have been saved. I'm, I'm healthy and whole. I am the wise man because I ran away from the fight and lived to run away from the fight another day. And yet, what is it that will catch up to him in the end? Ails and aches. Illnesses, disease, sicknesses. No matter how fast, no matter how far you run from the fight, eventually old age will catch you because that is a fight that you cannot flee far enough away from. No matter what condition you are in physically, no matter what you set your mind to accomplish by running away from the, what you, what you think you've accomplished by fleeing the fight, in the end, you will still be racked by ailments and diseases and illnesses, afflictions, and yes, the spears and the swords and the arrows and the fists of the enemy have not touched you. 
but old age has. And the blade of mortality has cut you to the quick. And therefore, in the wisdom of the Havamal, how wise is a man who flees from the fight, knowing that in the end, he will be run down and he will be conquered and he will die. So do you fight and die today? Or do you run away from the fight and wait for old age and disease to take you? Well, for these folks, much like the Spartans, you either come home with your shield or on it. Because remember, if you die in battle, if you die with bravery and honor, you go to Valhalla, you go to the Mead Hall. If you run away from the fight, you're a coward, you're weak, and you go to hell. Therefore, for these people, a wise man understands that he will not live forever, that every dog has its day, so to speak. And therefore, if you run from the fight, eventually you will die. Or you can stand and fight and maybe die today, perhaps. Perhaps the next fight you fall. But better to fall with a sword in your hand. Better to fall facing the enemy, facing forward toward the enemy, running at the enemy, charging the enemy. Better to die brave and bold with your integrity intact, with your honor, not only for yourself intact, but for your family, for your sons in particular, back in those days. Or you can die an old man with your stocking cap on, under piles of blankets, because you can never get warm, because the chill of death is upon you. And you can die hiding under the covers, terrorized by death. Therefore, the unwise man thinks that he will live if he runs away from fighting. But the ails and the aches of old age will dog him, and they will catch him, even though spears have spared him. So don't run away from the fight, they're saying. A wise man doesn't run. A wise man stands and fights because he understands the consequence, yeah, the consequence, the cost of turning and fleeing. Because much like Alexander, there is no dishonor if the scars are on the front of your body. But if you have scars on your back, that's a sign that you ran away from the fight. And there is no honor in that. Next, stanza 36 and 38. We'll do both of these. Stanza 36. One's home is best, though a hut it be. There a man is master and lord. Though but two goats thine and a thatched roof, tis far better than beg. A man's home is best. That is, for a man to have his own home is best, even if it's a hut, even if it's a sod hut. One room, it's you, your wife, your child, livestock. It's still yours. It's your house, preferably built with your hands, because that is your castle, 
a man's house is his castle. People used to say that. And even if I have two goats, and that's all I have, even if I have a thatched roof, even if I have a roof made of sod, still better than begging. To have your own home is to be a king in his castle. To beg, though, well, that's just to be a beggar. There is no nobility in that. No honor in that, going back to verse, uh, what was that, verse 16. To make a home for oneself. Not just a house, not just the physical structure, but to make a home out of that house and be able to walk away in the morning with your home at your back and then to come home at the end of the day and go into your home and know this is, this is mine. I built this. I made this. This is the home that I made, that we made as a family. Here I am master and Lord. Even if I have very little, even if other wealthy, rich people in their castles look down their noses at me and judge me a peasant because my home isn't made out of stone. I don't have soldiers walking the walls, guarding the gates of my home. Even though I don't have stables full of horses and fields full of cattle and sheep and goats, just because I don't sit on a throne and have a gold-encrusted tiara put on my head, and I don't hold a bejeweled scepter. Just because I don't have servants who wait on me hand and foot doesn't change the fact that my house is my castle, because it's mine. There's something to be said about that, especially today, when, in particular, the state wants to intrude into our homes, and we allow these multinational conglomerations, these corporations to invade our homes through our devices. And we allow them to tell us what we're going to do in our homes, what we're going to do outside our homes, how we're going to be kings and queens in our homes so that we're really not kings or queens because it's not really our castle. It's someone else telling us what to do and someone else controlling our decisions. Many, many people, if not all of us in the United States anyways, have slowly but surely given up our castle and opened the gates and allowed others to come in and rule us. We've allowed the state to tell us how we will live in our homes. We've allowed these multinational conglomerations to tell us how we will think, what we will eat, how we will sleep, how we will have sex, how we will raise our children. Everything that happens in our homes, there's always someone outside trying to encroach upon us to tell us what we can and can't do in our homes. To the extent that our devices listen to us, in our homes. And then those companies use that to collect data about us, to target us with their ads, but also to sell that data to other actors. 
So is our home our castle? Are we the master and lord of our home? And if not, what can we do to take back what is ours by right? You made your house. You made your home. And in that home, you are master and lord. You are kings and queens in your house. There is no one to rule over you because you rule over your house. No matter how small and modest and humble it may be. It is not the state's responsibility to intrude upon your home. It is not anybody's right to intrude upon your home because your home is your castle. So remember that. And in case someone does try to intrude, let's go to stanza 38. From his weapons away, no one should ever stir one step on the field. For no one knows when need might have, on a sudden, a man of his sword. Your weapon, don't leave home without it. No one should ever stir one step on the field without one's weapon. Because you don't know when you might have need of it. When will another man pop up? and attempt to strike you down with his sword? When will another man come into your front yard and attempt to invade your castle and to take your life or your body or your possessions or those of your family? Isn't it remarkable when we read just these three stanzas, 16, 36, and 38, already we have a picture painted for us of wisdom according to the Norse people. And just in these three stanzas, and we have many to go, we see the contradiction in the present tense with this time-tested wisdom from the past. That we are not supposed to have our weapon at the ready. Let the state take care of that. Let others protect and defend you. Your house is not your home. It's somewhere that you live And then other people will come into your home through your devices or in actual reality, and they will tell you what to do in your home, how to think about your home, what you can and can't do in and around your home. If we look to the past, like I talked about in the last podcast when we were reading the story of Siegfried and Fafnir, this time-tested wisdom is not taught, it's not held up, it's not exemplified in modern culture anymore because you can already get a taste for how damaging and harmful it might be to those who wish to dominate and lord their power over us and to take away from us those things that establish us as individuals, as clans. One of the things that you'll notice about humanism and how humanism has evolved into globalism is the attack on tribalism. The attack on the understanding of family as a clan. And that if you're not of this clan, well, then we're going to view you with suspicion until you prove that you're trustworthy to us. Whereas in globalism, we're supposed to love everybody the same. We're supposed to trust everyone the same. We're just part of one big global village. Well, we're not all the same. We don't all believe in the same God. We don't all practice the same religion. We don't all share the same political ideology. We don't share the same morals and ethics. And yet, what do we have hammered home day after day after day? 
We're going to join with the United Nations. We're going to join with the World Health Organization. We're going to build back better. We're going to be a part of this great reset and this fourth industrial revolution. And you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Klaus Schwab, World Health Organization, or World Economic Forum. Everything about the globalists today is to strip us of our individuality and ultimately our humanity. And like I said, though, you read these three stanzas at the beginning of the Hava Mall, and already you can hear the counter-argument to the globalists, which is, this is my home. It's mine. This is my castle, and here I am king, I am sovereign. This is my weapon, should you attempt to come and take from me what is mine, or should you attack me in the field? I will defend myself with my sword against your sword, because I am prepared. And I am wise enough to know that if I run away from the fight now, someday it will come back to bite me and ultimately kill me. And so wisdom is standing and fighting. Wisdom is standing and fighting for what is yours, your home, your family, your tribe, your clan. And what do the globalists, what do they want to strip us of? Well, first and foremost, our God, because they want to become our God. And then our home, because they want to become our parent. And of course, they want to render us impotent. So of course, they want to take away our weapons. But to you who are listening in Australia, how's that going so far? I pray for you constantly, Australians, because you do live in a truly totalitarian fascist state now. So all of us, no matter where you are listening to this, learn from Australia. Do not give up your home. Do not give up your weapons. Do not be duped and fooled into abandoning wisdom and listening to the tyrants, listening to the adversary and the forces of evil. Do not be seduced and bewitched by what is satanic. And I would argue that you can recognize it because it comes under the guise of globalism and building back better and how we all need to be a part of this big global village. The homogenization of mankind. So skipping forward now to stanza 77. Cattle die and kinsmen die. Thyself eke soon will die. One thing I wot will wither never, the doom over each one dead. Every living thing dies. Or as Jesus himself said, lest a seed fall into the ground and die, it cannot produce fruit. We are doomed. And our doom is that everything living dies. And yet if nothing ever dies, then nothing ever can be born again. Unless the fruit falls from the branch and it rots and ferments and is eaten by bugs and insects and birds and rodents and the seeds are allowed to fall to the ground and die, those seeds can't sprout. Their roots can't sink down into the earth. Their stem can't push up through the soil. And it cannot grow into a fruit tree and produce, well, 
abundant fruit, we will all die. But our fame will never die. If we live wisely, if we are brave and noble, if we walk through this life with integrity and dignity, if we are kind and charitable to those who deserve it, if we practice justice fairly and equitably, well then our fame, our reputation will never die. I heard a saying once that great people are remembered, whereas legends never die. And so great people who do great things, accomplish great things, they're remembered, they're talked about, they're taught about in classes, in schools, they're talked about around the kitchen table at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Great people are remembered. We have holidays in their name. But legends, legends aren't remembered. Instead, they're always talked about as if they're still alive. Well, what makes someone a legend? Well, think of someone who you honor, someone who you respect, someone who you look to and say to yourself, I want to follow his or her example. I want to emulate them. And then when you talk about them, do you talk about them as if they're dead or as if they're still alive? I talk about old fighters that way sometimes. I talk, I talk about Siegfried and Beowulf like that sometimes, as if they're still alive, as if they're, they were real people and they're still kicking around somewhere in Northern Europe. Cattle die. Your kinsmen will die. You will die. But one thing will never wither. Your fame. Death, that is our doom. Death hangs over our head every day. We can choose to live with that, or we can choose to be terrorized by that. And as I've said before, the purpose of life is to live right now, today. Not to live for what happened yesterday. Not to live for what might happen tomorrow or what you hope happens tomorrow. You are given to the day. There is no such thing as yesterday. There is no such thing as tomorrow. They only exist in your imagination. You only have right now. And so... What I see most often are people doing their damnedest to not die today. They're not living. They're not alive. They're simply focused on avoiding death. And that's not living. They live in fear and anxiety. They're constantly insecure. They're constantly searching for new and greater meaning for their life and what they're doing. But here's the catch. They're always chasing after something that they think is going to satisfy that itch. It's going to calm their nerves. And they chase after that thing, and then they get that thing, and they become that thing. And when that doesn't ultimately satisfy them, and it doesn't put their mind at ease, then they chase after the next thing, and they become that thing. And on and on it goes until they die. 
So maybe that thing is jujitsu. So you chase after that thing and you pursue it with everything that you've got and you become that thing. You become a jujitsu practitioner and that becomes your identity. But then after three years or six years or 12 years, you find that it doesn't satisfy and it hasn't quieted the fear of dying. It hasn't removed your anxiety and insecurity about death. So then you find something else. Maybe it's mountaineering. So you become that thing and you climb the seven peaks and you have the pictures and you have the North Face gear and you have the stories. But when you have crested the seven peaks, you discover that you're still not satisfied. You're still anxious and insecure because death is still coming and the doom is still hanging over you like a dark cloud. So then you chase after the next thing. I'm going to solo kayak down the Amazon. And you chase after that thing and you become that thing. And what you never realize is that you're chasing after something. And you're becoming something. But God didn't make you to be something. He made you to be someone. He didn't make you so that you could become a thing. He made you so that you could become a beloved child of God to become fully human. And that's what it means to be alive, to live today, to recognize that you are a creature, you are a creation of God. And therefore you live your life trusting that you were chosen to be created. You were chosen to be here right now, today. And that whatever happens an hour from now, 10 hours from now, 10 years from now, God willing. That is not your concern. That is not for you to worry about. You have been given life today. And the purpose of that life is to live and to recognize that everything around you that is alive is your life. So stop once in a while and kneel down. Take off your shoes and socks and walk in the grass. Just sit and stare at the trees. Listen to the birds. Watch the clouds roll by. Stand outside naked in a rainstorm. Dig a snow fort in the middle of a blizzard. Make an igloo. And recognize that's what living's all about. Now you're alive. Because you're surrounded by life. And you're in the middle of all that, which means you're a part of that life. The grass and the dirt and the trees and the clouds and the birds and everything that has life in it. You're a part of that. That's life. That's living. Death comes for us all. You can run from it or you can run toward it. Either way, you're not in control of that. Or you can choose to live. You can live through the struggles and the challenges and the hardships. You can live through the illnesses and the diseases and the deaths. You can live through the failures and the successes. You can live through the peaks and the valleys. You can live through the time and season where you're allowed to rest and know quiet both in your heart and your soul and your mind. 
and you get to live through the times when you are disquieted and you are upset and your mind is racing. Because everything that I just listed off means that you're alive. So live while there's still daylight. Live because you're a child of God. Live because you've been chosen to breathe now, to have blood pulsing through your body now, your synopses firing now. We are all doomed to die. But not all of us are doomed to live. And now stands 81. At eve praise the day. Oh, there you go. <laughs> At eve praise the day. When burned down a torch. A wife when wedded. A weapon when tried. Ice when over it. Ale when tis drunk. In the evening. Before you go to bed. Praise God. Praise the day. Praise that you were allowed to be a part of today. When the torch is burned down and the light goes out. When your beloved is in bed next to you. When your weapon is sharp and ready. When the ice, well, when you're over that. And when all the ale is drunk, praise the day. Praise God. Praise God for his gifts to you today. That you have a home. That you have a beloved in bed with you. That you have a weapon at your side. That you have ale to drink. That's a good day. So don't be afraid to call it out. Sing about it. Shout about it. Laugh about it. Today was a good day, to quote Ice Cube. Why not praise the day? Why not praise God? Why not stand outside naked in a rainstorm? Or stand outside in a snowstorm and praise God for the day? Why not scream into the hurricane and laugh? That's what they do in Florida. <laughs> Why not praise the day when you get into bed and go back to back with your beloved? Why not praise the day when you know that your weapon is sharp and at the ready and you know how to use it? Because that's the thing. And I want to just take a brief moment to go down a rabbit trail. Because for those of you who are, are not in my ecosystem... <laughs> The last two years in particular has exposed a radical passivity, I would call it spiritual cowardice, within the churches, especially amongst the religious leadership of the churches. And particularly, what has happened is that the church leaders have pushed hard to spiritualize the faith to the extent that Christians are essentially urged to not participate in civil society, in the civil estate as we call it. And yet, as a pastor, 
and as someone who hosts a theological podcast besides this one, I receive texts and emails and DMs every other day, usually, from folks who are struggling in their vocations, in their homes, in their neighborhoods, at work, at school, in the gym. They're struggling with what's happening, with the pressure to get vaccinated, with the mandates, with the non-kinetic civil war that has broken out in our country, the medical tyranny that has overtaken us, the globalist agenda that seems to be creeping always forward. And so I want to say this to Christians in particular, that Christians are bound by God never to act out of hatred. We're called to not hate. We may loathe, we may resent, we may become angry, but we are never to act out of hate towards another person because we recognize this also is a creature of God. I may not agree with her, I may not like how he is behaving, but they are a creature of God and they are someone for whom Jesus died and rose from the dead. But, and I think this is key, love for your neighbor, your actual neighbor, the person standing right in front of you in that moment, and obedience to our vocation that God has laid upon us, especially the care of our family, that has a positive obligation to violence. Let me repeat that. Christians are called by God to never act out of hatred toward anyone. But love for one's actual neighbor and obedience to our godly vocations, specifically our duty to care for family, has a positive obligation to violence when evil encroaches upon us. Pacifism is wicked. It is profoundly wicked because it essentially says, I'm going to allow my family, for example, to be preyed upon, to be tyrannized and terrorized, to be victimized, to be hurt, and I will do nothing because Jesus will take care of them. That is a dereliction of your vocational duty that God has laid upon you. And that's why pacifism and standing by and doing nothing while your family in particular is preyed upon by predators, that's why it's wicked. So the distillation of politics and ethics and Christianity is identifying, correctly identifying, which men may be killed with a clean conscience. And yes, I understand, especially now after five or six generations of indoctrination towards spiritual cowardice and passivity, which is, was essentially the state's underhanded infiltration of Christian teaching and preaching that the churches accepted because they enjoyed a place of privilege within the public square, especially in the United States. We weren't being persecuted. We weren't being arrested for going to church. Pastors weren't being jailed for their messages. And so the church went along with the state because it enjoyed that privilege. But in the last five or six generations then, not only the indoctrination of passivity and spiritual cowardice has taken root and now produced this venomous bitter fruit, 
But the churches, especially the religious leaders, got fat and lazy because they got rich. And they built their big churches, and they built their church schools and gymnasiums, and they funded all of their church ministries and projects and outreaches, and the pews were full on Sunday. And so they had a reason, they had a motive for keeping the peace, for promoting pacifism in relation to the state in particular. But it's cost us. It's cost us our churches because many shut down last year and will never reopen. Many lost members due to COVID that they will never come back into the churches, not because they died because of COVID, but because of the fear-mongering. They're afraid to come back to church. They're afraid of engaging with others for fear of contracting COVID because they've swallowed the lies of the media. They've joined the cult of the new COVIDians, the branch COVIDians. And so, yes, I understand some Christians don't like the sound of this. And yet most of them don't question the police or soldiers bearing arms, carrying their weapons in their vocational duties. So to acknowledge the inherent right of self-defense is to acknowledge that some men in some circumstances must be killed not because we hate them, but because we are defending and protecting our family, our clan, our tribe. Now, that being said, it's not something that we are to revel in. It's not something that we are to celebrate and hoot and holler about. But we're also not supposed to shrink away from it. It is our vocational calling. It's our duty to our Creator. And it is one that must be taken absolutely serious with the absolute utmost care. And so I pray that God would save each of us from the day when that question ceases to be a hypothetical and comes knocking on our front door or busts through a window or attempts to snatch one of our family members off the street. But make no qualms about it. We are called by God in our vocations to care for our neighbor. And we have a positive obligation to violence in doing that. We don't revel in it. We don't celebrate it. But we must acknowledge the inherent right of self-defense. That there are some men in some invasive circumstances that must be killed for the good of our neighbor. Thus endeth the lecture. Moving on to the next stanza then, number 102. Many a good maid, if you mark it well, is fickle, though fair her word, that I quickly found when the cunning maid I lured to lecherous love. Every taunt and jibe she tried on me, and not I had of her. <laughs> if you couldn't tell, we've now switched to the section about Odin and the wisdom of Odin regarding women. Many a good maid, if you mark it well, is fickle. But she is fair with her words. She says one thing, but her behavior says another thing. I was watching a 
kind of anthology, I guess, on YouTube of TikTok videos last night, and then a breakdown of the the kind of mentality, the attitude, the ethic and philosophy of these, these different young women making these videos. And the one young woman said to, I guess, a, a young man who was interested in her, well, aren't you talking to other women? And he said, no, I, I want to be with you. I want to go out with you. I'm not messing around talking with other women, acting as if I'm available. I, I just, I want to be with you. And then the young woman says, and again, this is all on TikTok. Well, I'm talking to a whole bunch of other men and I haven't decided which of you I want to be with yet. So you're a fool if you're not talking with other women. And then she justifies what she's doing by saying, men don't respect us, ladies. So why should we respect them? If we can't trust them and what they say, why should they be free to trust us? And in essence, what she was saying then is, well, I've been hurt in the past by guys that fool around on me behind my back. So now I'm going to do to them what they do to me. I'm going to hurt them before they get a chance to hurt me. And so, of course, the commentator pointed out, because she's allowed what has happened in the past and the hurt done to her in the past to influence her present decisions, she's automatically disqualifying herself from enjoying a relationship with a man who wants to be faithful and monogamous with her. We see this in abuse all the time. I see it with kids who grew up in addiction like myself. I see it with people who are hurt in different relationships, personal, work relationships, whichever. You get hurt enough times and you slowly become the people that hurt you. That's always the danger with being abused is that you grow up to become an abuser yourself because you come to start emulating and manifesting those behaviors of abuse that were done to you in your own life. And you think to yourself, well, I'm going to hurt them before they hurt me. I'll drive them away before they drive me away. I'll break her heart before she breaks my heart. And unfortunately, I'm an expert on this because this is what I did in my early 20s. I was a serial monogamist. And this was my attitude if you dated me from the ages of about 18 or 19 until 24, 25, if we were together longer than three months, it was an absolute guarantee that I was going to do something to hurt you and drive you away from me. And it had nothing to do with you. That's the sad part. That's the dehumanizing part of this. It's because of me and how broken I was. And because I was hurt and broken and damaged and didn't know how to be a good man and be faithful and monogamous, and I only knew disrespect and resentment towards women, I hurt them before they had a chance to hurt me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thing was, at least two, if not three, of the young women that I dated in my early 20s were faithful and monogamous women who adored me. They were actually able to see through my addiction, <clears throat> my self-destructive behavior to who I actually was as a real person. And that scared me crazy to the point where I pushed them away even sooner because I saw that they adored me and that they actually loved me unconditionally and that they actually hoped for the best for me. And I was so unstable 
I was so drug-addled, so angry and self-destructive, that I took that as a threat. And so I hurt them before they could hurt me. And they were good women. They were faithful women. They were kind and generous and charitable. And they apologized for me to their friends. And I watched them as I pushed them away meet other good, faithful men who they married and built homes with and had their careers. And yet, whenever I would run into them later on down the road in my mid to late 20s, they would hug me and they would be genuinely interested in the direction of my life and they would forgive me for hurting them. And they would smile at me and they'd say, I pray for you a lot, and I hope that you find what you're looking for. And if you're out there, and if you ever listen to this, thank you. Thank you for that. Because you didn't know it at the time, and I didn't, but you were a light in the darkness. You were a light on the path that eventually led me out of the darkness of addiction and abuse and self-hatred, and self-pity. So thank you. That's all I got to say to Odin on that note. <laughs> now, stanza 113. Hear thou, Lord Fafnir, and heed it well. Learn it, twill lend thee strength. Follow it, twill further thee. In a witch's arms beware of sleeping, linking thy limbs with hers. Well, that's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? You don't want to get down with a witch. You don't want to go to bed with a witch. You don't want to get involved in a relationship with a witch. First and foremost, because you don't know if she's cast a spell on you or not. How do you know that you ever actually love her or you've just been bewitched? How do you know she hasn't seduced her with, seduced you with her charms? So listen and heed it well, and learn it, and it will give you strength, and it will help you further along down the road. Do not sleep in a witch's arms. Do not link your limbs with hers. I think you know what that means, linking your limbs with hers. Yeah. Don't link up with a witch. Don't hang out with someone who you're not quite sure if they're just leading you along. They're using you. You're kind of a puppet on a string for them. Yeah, don't be around those people. We all know people, and, you know, he says which, but we all know men and women who do that. They seduce you with their words. They give you a little, little look out of the corner of their eye. They rub up against you with their body. But they do that to everybody. And they say they want to be with you. They say they love and cherish you. But then you see them doing it to other people, and you wonder to yourself, Am I just being led along? Am I being played here? Have I fallen under his or her spell? Have I been seduced by their charms? If the answer to any of those is yes, well then, my friend, pack up and get out because you're in for trouble. Stanza 127. Hear thou, Lord Fafnir, and heed it well, learn it, twill lend thee strength. Follow it, twill further thee. 
If wrong was done thee, let thy wrong be known, and fall on thy foes straightway. So don't hang out with witches. Don't be seduced by witches. Don't let them bewitch you with their charms. On the other hand, learn this too, because this will give you strength. This will lead you along the road you must travel. If someone does wrong to you, put it out there. Expose it, reveal it, point at it, say it, and then attack. Going all the way back to stanza 16, don't turn and run away from the fight. If someone does true evil to you, like I just talked about in reference to Christians and the right to self-defense and loving your neighbor in your vocation to the point that you have to kill to protect them, when someone does evil to you or someone, more specifically, someone that you love, when someone attacks you or your family, when someone attacks your beloved, when someone attacks your clan or your tribe, point it out, call them out on it, and then attack. God willing, they'll turn and run away and not come back. Sometimes you got to punch them in the nose. Sometimes you got to take them to the ground. But let it be known and then act on that. We do not tolerate wrongdoing and evil in our presence, especially when it's being done to those whom we love. I like that one a lot. That's good. I think, too, that kind of brings me to the end of these stanzas, which is perfect because I'm at about 55 minutes and I don't want to take up all of your time today. Like I said at the beginning, I'll conclude with, it seems like at least where I live at and the people that I interface with on a daily basis, that these stanzas that I read and commented on today, the wisdom of the poetic Edda, the wisdom of the Havel Mall, it's forgotten on purpose. It's not taught on purpose. It's not emulated and held up as a text that we need to carry to the next generation, that we need to hold close to our hearts. And I think the reason is, well, at this point it should be obvious, because it encourages us to exercise discernment, to think for ourselves. It encourages us to listen to wisdom, the wisdom of our elders, which means the wisdom that comes from history. Also, it encourages us to make a home for ourselves and then to see ourselves as the Lord and master of our home. It encourages us to always keep our weapons sharp and at hand. It encourages us to be discerning and careful in our relationships so that we don't enter into destructive and unhealthy relationships. And it encourages us to stand up and call out wrong and evil when we see it and when necessary to attack it and to put it down. Imagine, what was that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That was nine stanzas. Nine. Did I cover 81? It's 10 altogether. Yeah, I did. 81 was praising the day and the evening. So 10 stanzas. I just read 10. Those 10 stanzas are enough to carry you through your entire life. There's enough wisdom in there to carry you through your entire life. But all of it centers around you as an individual 
and your family and those whom you love. It centers around distinguishing between good and evil, fighting for what is good and right, and fighting against what is evil and destructive. It calls you to be discerning about your relationships and who you enter into a relationship with. It encourages you not to run away from fights, but to stand your ground. Defend your home. Defend your family. Defend those you love. But in order to do that, you have to have your weapons ready. And you have to be trained up in how to use them effectively. Everything around us now is the constant drumbeat to surrender our weapons, to surrender our homes and our families to the state, to give up and bend a knee to medical tyranny, to bio-apartheid, to soft totalitarianism. And all that we need to do is give up our individuality and our humanity, give away our children to the state, give away sovereignty to the state. And as I said earlier, to quote Klaus Schwab, so that we can own nothing and be happy about it. So I understand why they promote foolishness and they want us to behave like mindless buffoons, like chattel slaves. I understand. I understand why they indoctrinate us in our public schools and public universities. I understand why celebrities and cultural influencers are constantly going on television and encouraging us to just listen to the state and do what they say. They're all paid mouthpieces. We know this. So my prayer and my hope is that in my own small way with this podcast, I can spread the message that there is time-tested and time-honored wisdom that can lift us up out of where we're at today. But it will be serious, and it will be violent, and it will demand that we sacrifice much, because we have sunk very, very low as a people. And we have allowed ourselves to be cowed by those who are unworthy of our respect, and they are unworthy of the positions of leadership that they are in. Or to sum it up this way, imagine if Alexander the Great or Leonidas, imagine if George Patton, imagine if they stood up and said, men, today we march into the greatest, the most important battle of our lives. And to lead us, here is Nancy Pelosi. Here's Chuck Schumer. Here's Joe Biden. Can you imagine the morale of an army when those kinds of people step up on the dais? They're not leaders. They don't have scars on the fronts of their bodies. They don't have any scars. Because to quote stanza 16, whenever there's a fight, they run away and let others fight for them. They're like Reagan. And how we read about Reagan last week, how Reagan wanted Siegfried to fight and kill Fafnir, and then Reagan claimed the gold treasure for himself. That's who these people are. They're not leaders. They're not worthy of our respect. They're not honorable. They have no integrity. They're cowards. They're fools. They're puppets. 
And so the only way for us to escape our current situation, the only way for us to rise above where we have sunk to is to look backwards. It's to recover the wisdom of our fathers and mothers, our spiritual fathers and mothers, and to promote it and to shout it as loudly as we can in the public square. And to say, here, here's a roadmap. Here is a chorus of voices. Here is a choir of wise people who can lead us out of the dark ages in which we find ourselves today. Because we are in the dark ages, my friends. Intellectual dark ages, emotional dark ages, social dark ages. And just because you have 53 different apps to entertain yourself with, just because everything is packaged and boxed and ready to eat in a minute, just because life is so convenient for you, that doesn't mean that we're not in the dark ages. Morbidly obese kids pushing McDonald's into their face are just as deprived of nutrients as any starving child in Africa. It's all a matter of optics. We were not made to cower in our beds. We were not created to run away from the fight. We were not created to stand silent and mute while evil proliferates and preys upon our neighbors and our families and us. So check out the Poetic Edda. Check out the Havamal. Read stories to your children about Beowulf and Siegfried and others. Fill their mind with images of great men and women who did legendary feats and say to them, you can do this. You could be the next Siegfried. You could be the next Patton. You could be the next Da Vinci. You could be the next Tesla. You could be the next Alexander. But for the love of God, please don't be the next Genghis Khan. We've had too many of those already. We don't need more Joseph Stalins or Pol Pots. We don't need more Nancy Pelosi's and Mitch McConnell's. Let them die and go extinct. What we need are men and women of wisdom and courage and bravery and nobility. So how about today you choose to live and today you be that person for the people around you in your life, in your home, in your neighborhood, at work, at school, at the gym. You be the person who stands up and exhibits nobility and integrity and courage and bravery. Become a legend today. All right, Space Monkeys, that's all I got. Peace.